Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. And here at the outset, let me say thank you for coming along for the ride. This is a milestone episode number 200. We've met some fascinating people along the way, and I'm just getting warmed up. There are so many creative, mindful, artistic folks out there with conversations worth sharing. So I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Paul Stephen Stone. Paul's one of the best copywriters in the advertising business, and I have worked with him, but he's also worked as a newspaper columnist with his best columns appearing in How to Train a Rock, a collection available on Amazon. His first novel, or so it seems, was dubbed a rollicking spiritual odyssey by one reviewer, and Paul's latest book is out. It's called Sojourner. It's also a spiritual thriller, a whodunit, if you will. I love the book, and we're going to be talking about it with him. Paul Stevenstone, thanks for joining us on Mike. Well, Paul, you and I have known each other a long time, and I knew you had it in you. But man, oh man, what a book. It blew my mind. It's so much fun. We're going to talk about it. Congratulations on Sojourner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jordan. It was a five-year effort, and I'm really pleased with it. It looks like the kind of thing, when you get into it, that uh, took a little bit of thought on your part, because it makes the reader think like crazy. It really does. Tell me a little bit about where the germ of the idea came from. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the actual uh, spark was uh, a friend of mine, a good friend, was going through what I would consider to be an incredibly horrible divorce, mm-hmm. and his... Uh, Wife, soon to be ex, was was about as vicious, conniving, cunning, and as much of a harridan as you'll ever find in this world, seemingly to me, at least to my friend and to his friends. So it struck me that this is this was so bad that it had. I believe in karma. I believe in reincarnation. A lot of the things that I put in the book are, are beliefs that I've allowed to be peppered throughout the story, and it struck me that this divorce was so karmic in its in its monumental disruptive quality and it's clear i mean it's one of those things that comes along in your life and changes your life forever and uh, so it struck me that this was a karmic event and once i had that idea i started to think about the fact given that i believe in reincarnation that was there any way that his previous sojourner you know the previous incarnation of his soul might have warned him that this was coming and that was the germ, germ of the idea. Structurally, Paul, the book is creatively put together in that when we hear the voice of that woman, <laughs> Blossom is the character, she's in italics, which is great because she stands out. You're basing this character on that particular female who divorced your friend. Okay. Exactly. N- names will exactly. go unmentioned, of course. You just said something that I was going to ask you about. The material in the book at times seems a bit tongue-in-cheek when it comes to the spiritual stuff. And yet, I know there's an element of true sincerity. Where do, where do you come down on all that? My first book, or so it seems, my first novel, uh, had a lot more tongue-in-cheek quality to, to talking about spiritual, what I, I would say were spiritual realities. I think if I don't sugarcoat it, it gets a little bit difficult for a non-believer to, to take down, you know, seriously. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of stuff that I think you have to sort of slip by people, and then they kind of wake up to it later. Uh, I believe in reincarnation, which means that I believe every one of us has been reincarnated. And I also believe that if that's true, every one of us at some level knows that we've been reincarnated. And something in us will start to resonate with some of these ideas. And a lot of the uh, the concepts were from my own. Uh, I was in a school of self-development for 13 years here mm. in Boston. Mm. Uh, a lot of those concepts were basically fed to the school 
through a Hindu master. You talk about that in the book. That there is that school that you reference. So you're you're talking from right. personal experience. Okay. I am. I am. Uh, in great. the book, they're called uh, the Seekers for Truth, and the Hindu holy man is the Bapu Charya. The quote that is so important, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. How's my French? <laughs> You know that quote by heart, I'm sure. That's the essence of this, right? Your belief. What is that quote? It is. And, you know, I have to say, I have to admit to actually misquoting Teilhard de Chardin. It's, we are not human creatures having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual creatures having a human experience. I said journey rather than experience, I think. I think the message is clear, though. I think it's very clear. Yes. And and it's, it's probably the most succinct uh, phrasing of the concept of what our lives are about that I've ever come across. I'd like to explore without giving anything away because there is there's a mystery here. It doesn't have the subtitle, A Karma Crime Story for Nothing, and it kept right. me going until the last page. I was so excited to, to get to the end and find <laughs> out what happens. But um, let's talk a little bit about the main character who's sort of Things are happening to and around David Rockwood Worthington. Boy, you couldn't get a more waspy name than that. And yet, <laughs> and yet, Paul, <laughs> tell us about uh, him. Well, he's somebody that's made some bad decisions and he's made some good decisions, like all of us. And his some of his decisions that were really less than uh, ideal relate to his choices. A couple of his marriages were, uh, let's say, less than uh, ideal or idealized. And at the same time, you know, I don't think they hurt him as much as they helped him grow. Because I also believe whatever, whatever you're suited to, to deal with in life, that's what the universe sends to you. You don't get problems that are much too big for you to handle. You get problems that may seem much too big, but the reality is um, if you hang on long enough, you'll deal with them. Well, we should, we should let the audience know the main plot point is that he has been accused of murder, and it looks like a slam-shut case, murdering his, what, third wife? Third wife, yeah. right. He's not only accused, he's been tried and convicted. Tried and so he's in prison. He's and- in prison, where he learns that his uh, ex-wife, who he suspects, and the reason he's writing this, it's really a letter to, his ne- to, to the next incarnation of his soul. He's basically realizing that this particular spirit that travels with him from incarnation to incarnation, has a an agenda that's going to be that is going to be disastrous for his and future incarnations. And he's trying to help himself, really, because if you think about what a soul journey is, it's the incarnation of a soul in one lifetime. The next lifetime, even though it's a different incarnation and a different uh, soul journey, in some ways it's the same. It's the same entity. Uh, I don't know how that works, and I can't really say that I know it's a fact, but essentially you're writing a warning to yourself. Mm. Next time you come around, just keep an eye out for this particular (laughs) person, the spirit. Yeah, well, well, even I was going to say, Paul, even people who are skeptical of reincarnation are not investigating it themselves. I mean, we all know that feeling that we've been somewhere before or that someone in our life, boy, that person reminds me of somebody else. I can't put my finger on it. It's, 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 it's an ethereal thing, but it does exist, that, that feeling. Well, there are a number of times in our lives when we kind of, it's almost as though we see something out of the side of our eye. And that's, that's kind of when the spiritual and the physical kind of collide, as in deja vu. And yes, I've had a number of those experiences. And at the same time, um, 
you don't understand it when it's happening, but it has a certain otherworldly quality to it. Mm. We're talking with Paul Stone. He's written a new book called Soldier a Karmic Crime Story. I want to get back to the spiritual beliefs that are fluent throughout the book, but I want to talk to you about the structure of the book, which is pretty creative. I love things that challenge me, and, and I mentioned the italicism of Blossom, the, uh, the evil one, but there are lots mm-hmm. of changes between first person and third. And I'm just wondering how a writer of your note puts something like this together. If you know as you're going along or from the start, you're going to have these voices showing up here. Well, this is a great question, Jordan. This writing of this book was a spiritual experience. Uh, By that, I mean, I did not know where I was going to end up. I did not understand the plot points that I had to set down. When I I wrote that uh, point where the blossom first uh, interrupts the narrative. I had no idea what that was going to represent. And when I did the same thing with the doctor, with the, with the therapist from the prison, I had no idea why he would be coming through. Later on, it all fit together. And I ended up, this is one of those situations where because I was allowing myself to be guided, um, and I, so I did it without knowing where I was going, um, I ended up getting to a place that I felt very comfortable with. And when I had the solution to the murder, which I didn't know till the very end, it all made such incredible sense. I love that, Paul, because I've talked with thousands, literally thousands of writers, and so many of them say something similar. Oh, the characters take me to where I'm going, but in this case, your soul guided you, it sounds like. Well, my, my muse, even though I, yeah. I created a character that was my muse, uh, I gave I gave that character a, a lot more power than I would give because the reality is it's not as obvious when you're being led. Um, when I wrote my first novel, there was a point about two thirds of the book, two thirds through the book, when something in me realized what the ending was going to be and I got depressed for two or three weeks because the main character was going to die. Mm. And I didn't know, and I identified with the main character to be honest. And it was like a revelation to me. And uh, at the same time, it was an appropriate ending to what, what, what the story takes place in less than a minute, the entire novel, even though it runs for 400 pages. Mm. No, I just I just love it. Also, the fact that you mentioned the therapist and you've got the notes of the therapist in that kind of language. And hey, listen, I've been in therapy myself, too. But uh, you did a lot of research. You had to have uh, to understand MCI Shirley, the prison, to understand the therapist. Tell us about the research. Uh, Well, thank you. I guess a lot of the research in terms of psychological uh, concepts and understanding relates to the fact that my first wife was a psychologist. Um, And psychology always interested me. There's a fabulous trilogy called the Deptford Trilogy Mm -hmm. by Robertson Davies. And the second book in the trilogy uh, is basically a a psychiatrics, a series of psychiatric sessions. Um, And I always loved that voice because that particular narrator can get to places that no other narrator can. When you have the psychological underpinnings in front of you, it's just a fascinating thing. But to tell the story with this, with the psych- psychotherapist being more of a participant than we realize, it was also kind of a, just fun. Speaking of fun, I, I mentioned at the outset, there's a lot of stuff that made me smile and even chuckle. And uh, one of the things that made me smile, you've got this character who visits the imprisoned one and provides 
back rubs and more than that, a special therapeutic massage that's coated with spiritual enlightenment and all that. He sounded right. like a card. Uh, I, is he based on someone? He's a compilation. Um, I have a very good friend who's not at all uh, inclined to sa- cranial sacral matters, but who, whose, whose spirit was, was really in, infused that character. Then I have a reflexologist who is a psychic, and she's been uh, a real immense source of a lot of insight for me. I guess the rest of it just comes from my own experience. But that character was somebody, because he was my friend John, you know, in viewing that character, I just loved him. So it's kind of an interesting relationship to have that kind of thing with the character. There are a lot of women characters besides Blossom. There are other women in the life of our main hero here. And you write the women. They're very interesting. They're not by any stretch cutouts. I, I will say Blossom is pretty much static in terms of her her villainy. But talk a little bit about with me about developing these female characters and both comic and tragic, and they have a lot going on. They really uh, kept my interest. Well, his first wife uh, is, was somewhat modeled on, on my first wife, who was also, as I said, a psychotherapist. But some of the other women in there just relate to people that I've come across in life. And, you know, when you get divorced at 40, 41, and you're thrust back into the single world, it's suddenly like you're a stranger in a strange land. Mm. And some of that was was conveyed, I think, in my uh, in the novel. Yeah. Some of the sense of being suddenly you're you're led into a candy store that you had been barred from all your all your life because sexual uh, mores and standards were a lot different when I went into my marriage than they were when I came out of it. Mm. Uh, so there's a very strange quality of being free and liberated. At the same moment, you're feeling abandoned and jettisoned from something that you didn't want to leave. I asked you about the prison, because it's Shirley prison, right? Right. In the book. Did you visit? Shirley Mass. Shirley Mass, right. Did you visit there or just base your information on what you could find online and in researching? Uh, Just basically, uh, I allowed the universe to do my research for me, I have to say. Sounded pretty authentic to me. (laughs) That's great. It it I felt... One of the things that happens in writing a novel is the more you create details, whether they're realistic or not, you help ground the reader in realism because Mm. he or she doesn't feel like they have to figure out what a prison cell is like. You know, when I created that wall, I painted it with something that allowed you to use dry erase markers. That's just something that that came out of the ether. I I didn't have any experience with that. I know that 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 paint exists because I've seen it in businesses. Mm. But it just struck me as kind of a... Well, that'd be a great way for a writer in a prison cell to, you know, to outline his story. Well, as you say that, uh, I'm Mr. Creep. I mean, I heard a beep. I'm going to get rid of that. As I, as you say that, Paul, I can't help but think about that beautiful connection between universe, mind, heart, and the pen. I mean, there is that odd thing where you're just sitting there and things come to you. A, a composer would feel the same way. So I want to come back to that. Uh, was this always the case in in terms of you writing? I know you worked in the advertising world. We worked together. Would that have been the same situation with writing a, a snappy jingle or something like that? No, I don't think, I think it would have been the same source. Mm-hmm. I think that's the source. The, the source is the universe, whether or not we're as open to receiving it as we are, you know, once we've had some experience with life and writing. When I wrote my first novel, or so it seems, 
I wrote uh, an entire, you know, and that was over 12 years. I wrote the entire novel out. I sent it to a woman who I knew who was an agent. And she wrote back just to say it needed more narrative friction. And so I said to myself, narrative friction. And I kind of knew what she meant. I had written a linear a story that progressed linearly, and it was not very interesting. It was just a guy going going through a divorce and putting his life back together. When I sat down to do the rewrite, this whole spiritual aspect, it was almost as though somebody hit me on the side of the head and said, now you're going to write the novel you were supposed to write. <laughs> and the Baba Charia came in immediately, uh, The Seekers for Truth, and all this stuff that I had no idea where it came from or where it was taking me suddenly came in, flooded in. And I was so scared. Thank God we have computers. And I was able to copy the story, the novel that I had written because I was so afraid of getting so lost in the new narrative that I'd never find my way back if I needed to. And I never needed to. Another interesting point that I'll bring up, um, it's, a, it's an optimistic look at where we are. Despite all the hardship that the characters face, they die, they have cancer, they're in prison for the rest of their lives. And yet, I guess it's because to be reincarnated suggests everlasting life in some way or shape or form. Am I right about that? Very optimistic. The, the main character who's, who's got a life sentence knows that he is not going to serve the rest of his life in prison. He just knows it. He's been given that information at some level. And that's why I can write a sequel. <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course. You're, you're... And, and the optimism relates to the fact, I think, you know, it's often been said that the uh, universe is basically moving in, in a positive direction, that justice is move, tilting towards justice, I think Martin Luther King said. And I feel like that's true. You know, we're nowhere, even though we've had the last crazy five years, we're nowhere near as barbaric or as prejudiced. Prejudices are coming out, but I don't think they were non-existent five years ago. So I think the universe is moving to a better place. That's how I feel. Mm. I feel like there is a certain kind of tilt towards sanity and justice. Well, certainly concur, and I hope you're right, and I, I think you are. Let's go back, though, to where it all started for you, if it did have a starting point, this thirst to know and explore and learn about more than the body and more than just the material. Uh, was there an event in your life, Paul, or a dark night of the soul that prompted you to do some searching or what? No, this is one of those situations where you, you grab a string that leads to a thicker string that leads to a rope that leads to the elephant's tail, and suddenly you've got the elephant in hand. Hmm. I lived in a cooperative in Cambridge, um, God, I don't know. So let's say 40 years ago, 45 years ago. And uh, I had a roommate that was in this uh, spiritual development school. And I just saw that it was really making a difference in his life. And that was a school like the Seekers for Truth that really um, had a lifeline going back to a Hindu uh, holy man. And, and a whole body of knowledge that opened up to the school through that holy man. And every uh, once I got to the senior level, I was um, I would participate in groups where we listened to conversations that people from the London School, which was the main branch, would have with the with the uh, it was a Shankaracharya was was his official name, which was a holy man in India, and he would talk about about these esoteric underlying uh, spiritual laws and principles that we never even realized. The world 
you know, we think because we can see the top bit of the iceberg that we've seen it all and, and we fool ourselves and we, you know, maybe we, it works well for a lot of people, but I think the reality is that most of the world is unseen by us. Uh, I wrote a self uh, uh, review for uh, Sojourner and, uh, and the headline was Amazing Adventures in an Unseen World. I mm, love it. Uh, have you had an opportunity to explore your own karmic past? And if so, how is that done and, and what have you found out? All, the only connection that I have with my past, I had years ago, I had gone to a lady in my, I belonged to a Unitarian church in Hingham who was a channel, a lady who was a member of the church, but it was a channel for a spirit named Michael. And I've, I've since read other things that people have written about Michael. But in one of those sessions, Michael said, I asked Michael why, I, why I, I grew up with such fears. I grew up in the Bronx and I had, had these oversized fears all the time. Um, and then Michael said, it might have been because you had a violent death in the previous life. And then he said something that was kind of jarring. He said that, in fact, I think you, you might have been lynched. So now, fast forward, maybe 20 years later, 25 years later, I'm going for a session called Life Between Lives. There's a fellow, Michael Newton, I believe his name is, who, who discovered this realm between lives, where the spirit goes between one life and the next. And the way that you can visit it is by going to the end of your previous life. And they, they, they basically use hypnosis to allow you to travel there. If this is all getting too weird, stop me, Jordan. <laughs> no, because I have a story, too, that I'll relate. But after you're done, go ahead. Okay. So I went to this lady who had been trained in the Newton Institute. And she spent about three and a half hours trying to get me to go back to this previous, the end of the previous existence. And the reason I couldn't do it is because I was so afraid that having heard that I was possibly lynched, I was going to basically create that reality. So I was trying to basically stop that from coming in. And once we, we stopped and talked about it, somehow it, it allowed the flow to happen. So we went back to the session and I saw myself at some point, I saw myself in two images and they were amber colored and they felt very healing, soothing. One image had me hanging, uh, being lynched, and on my chest, the word was N-I-G-G-A-H. Um, and then the other image was from the eyes of the fellow being lynched, looking out at the crowd. And that was, I mean, it's very shocking to see that, but it, it felt true. I didn't feel like I created it. And then from there, I went to this other realm, and you travel through a tunnel and all this other stuff. And I didn't have much success really in visualizing it, but I felt that was there. So um, that that's my other lives well, that I'm I, aware of. I, I once had a session with uh, one of the people who used to guest on my radio show. She's lovely, Jenny Mativia. And we did a little hypnosis past lives regression session. Oh. Interestingly enough, I had a couple of violent incidents that I was either creating or imagining or refocusing on, and I believe there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, one in which I was businessman in the 1920s having tough times and was shot by a jealous woman. <laughs> the other one, I was a uh, in, the, in the realm of Genghis Khan, one of these big beast masters who, uh, instead of sacrificing a child, I chose to kill myself jumping off a cliff. How do you oh. like them apples? I don't know if I can top you, but 
No, it was well, fascinating. That, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. And uh, I just relaxed and let my mind take over and uh, whatever else took over. It was really interesting. That's fascinating to know that it wasn't a trauma that forced you, not forced you, that brought you to this, but it was almost being led along by circumstance. But you discovered trauma later on in your past. Well, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's also a an element of... I was told by my psychic reflexologist who, when I go to meet with her, they're my guides are actually in the room with us. I was told by her that um, this lifetime, there's a reason why I haven't been able to reach the audience that I sought to reach in my writings. And that's because I was um, this part of me that's so afraid of being basically punished for speaking the truth or speaking out. And, uh, my last life was obviously, even, you know, the way that sign read, it struck me that they were saying he was not in his place. He was not in his proper place to make such a terrible joke on a sign. Mm. Um, and at this point, I've been told that that's kind of been lifted, that Sojourner has a mission to reach a larger audience. There's a whole other element to this, Jordan, that I'm afraid of sounding kind of uh, megalomania uh, to <laughs> bring up. But the reality is this is... I've been told this is for an audience to bring some, uh, basically to open up people's thinking about something larger than their own small little, you know, circumscribed lives. So um, it, it's, it, it, it's something that succeeds on that level, but it's also a fun read, which makes it, it's a page turning kind of book. And I'm not just stroking you, but it's really fun. And uh, one doesn't know exactly where it's going to go. And you didn't either when you were writing it. But once you get right. into it, man, it just takes over and, and you start to discover these characters that uh, are all part of this man's life and past life. And it, and it's beautiful how it's woven together and, and it's, a, and it's a mystery. Of course you agree. It's a mystery, too, which is great fun. For those who want uh, a little detective work to do, uh, see if you can figure it out. But it's, uh, it's, it's really quite fascinating, really well done. Well, you, you, the fact that you don't know where it's going or why some of these things are happening, that creates more a sense of uh, mystery for the reader as well because, you know, they're just traveling with you. Which I, And the other thing is... If I am not having fun writing something, then I know the reader's not going to have fun. And I try to be playful, having the Beatles in there and, and actually having oh, the yes. Beatles be an important element. Yes. To me, that was just so much fun. I, I read that and I said, that sounds a lot like Paul, because I, I know Paul's a big Beatles <laughs> guy. And I, I, I read that. Also, there's, uh, there's gangsters, there's the IRS. I mean, you throw everything into the mix. A little something for everybody. Somebody. <laughs> well, I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I'm sold that this will be uh, a hit, and I certainly will do my part to propel it in that direction. But I loved it. By the way, it's got a picture on the front of a whale, actually a, two whales, one going up, one going down. Uh, significance of right. that? There is, there is a uh, rationale behind it. I, when I first saw the cover, by the way, this is the shirt. Can you see it? Yes, the whale and the, and the palm, the, the, the third the eye. Hamster. Get it up here a little. Yeah, it looks cool. Very nice. Yeah, my, my publisher uh, created that just as a you know fun thing that you could buy. What were we talking about? Oh, I was just asking you about the cover. Oh, the, the whale. Yeah. The whale. So I looked at the cover and I said, well, that's provocative and interesting, but I don't know where the hell it comes from. I said, well, what, what's the story with the whale when I talked to my publisher? And he said, 
the um, designer was so infatuated with the concept of a karmic pod. Remember that? Yes. That was a group of of souls, spirits traveling from one incarnation to the next. So they each appeared in each other's lives time and time again. Right. And that's how the the uh, the villainous appears periodically or, you know, basically uh, repeatedly in the narrator's life. And uh, he said, well, she got this idea, karmic pods, whale pods. And that was the whole reason behind it. But I, but my the sequel is going to start with the sentence, I dream of whales. That's but, that's a good way to start. Absolutely. And it brings everything. It connects everything, which is which is really something that and here again, it's having fun with it. As we celebrate your book on a pod, on a podcast, <laughs> we think about the whales and the pods. I, well, thanks for the answer. I was curious about that. That makes perfect sense. Well, Paul, I'm very, very uh, happy to reconnect with you. This is a great reason, as any, to do that. And the book is really fun. It's called Sojourner, A Karmic Crime Story. Not just fun, but it really makes you think. And that's what readers want, at least the kind of readers I speak with. So uh, well done. Touche. And uh, may all of your spirit guides be applauding at this moment. I'm sure they are. Well, Jordan, thank you very much. Uh, just so people know, it can be bought on Amazon or at FahrenheitPress.com. And thank you, Jordan. I, I so appreciate your doing this. You're a good friend, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's wonderful to reconnect. Uh, that's what uh, these interviews afford me, the opportunity to do a reason to get together. Paul, stay well, and uh, we can't wait for the sequel. Take care. Okay. You too, Jordan. Thanks again. Do check out all of Paul Stephen Stone's works, all available on Amazon, including the new one called Sojourner. I give it a five-star review. I loved it. So, episode 200, let's kick off the next 200, shall we? want to say thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and of course to each and every one of you who take the time to subscribe and download and, and even rate and review the podcast. I so appreciate it. And as always, we close with these words, be well, so you can do some good. See you next time. Take care.